Hello. Before we get down to cinema, I would like to draw your attention to our Patreon. Regular listeners will know that these podcasts are supported by Quad, our home cinema in Derby, UK. But as Quad is a charity, we want to make Cinelet as self-sustainable as possible. So, to that end, we have set up a two-tier way in which you can support Cinelit. For our 35mm Cinefans, you'll get a bonus additional episode each month where we will be deep diving into an area of cinema that will be exclusive to Patreon subscribers for at least six months before it arrives like a late dinner guest on the regular feed. Plus, you get the episodes a week in advance of the main feed release. But if you want to support us and don't feel that pressing need to have the additional podcast each month, but still want that warm, satisfying feeling of being part of the Cinelit success story then you can become an 8mm Cinefan, where you can donate and get our heartfelt thanks. Head over to the Patreon page and subscribe if you can. However, we know that times are hard at the moment, so please do not feel you need to subscribe if you are not able. We'll still be putting out new, free-to-listen-to episodes on a regular basis throughout the year. Now let's get back to your regular scheduled broadcast. Welcome to CineLit. Today, maybe, possibly, if the cinema gods are listening, we are looking at the film history of James Bond. I say maybe, possibly, as we've already recorded this podcast once before back in February 2020, just prior to the COVID pandemic that swept the globe and knocked films uh, left, right and centre off their release dates. And uh, Bond over the last year or so has been somewhat of a pinball, bouncing around from release date to release date. But it's now got... A new release date, end of September in the UK. And uh, fingers crossed, this podcast will be relevant when it hits screens next month. So here we are in August 2021, having another crack at the James Bond franchise and its impact on cinema. My name is Adam Marsh. I am joined by Cinelit's resident expert, Daryl Buxton. How are you, Daryl? Yeah, very good, Adam. Looking forward to uh, talking all things Bond and talking about... uh, whole franchise and spy movies in general so uh, yeah should be good and let's hope that the film does go ahead as planned this time yeah well yeah touch wood touch all the wood around you they will go ahead and we are also joined by bond mega fan and director dominic burns how are you dom i'm good i'm good i'm excited to be chatting all things bond sure great to be talking to you boys again yeah, because we, we, we first got together in 2019, February, to uh, and we went through a whole podcast recording uh, Bond with you and Daryl, and here we are a year and a half on, doing it all again. Um, so I hope you've remembered exactly what you said first time round. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, this time round, if you can hear in the background, I'm also being joined by a dog that I'm dog-sitting and won't stop barking. So I, I just apologise in advance that uh, if you can hear a dog barking in the background throughout this interview. So we are back here looking at the long history of Bond. It's a, it's a fairly mammoth uh, task that we've set ourselves to try and gallop through the history of Bond. Uh, 50 plus years, uh, 25 official canon movies. And um, yeah, so but I figure we break it up, um, as most people do, in the different actor eras of Bond. So we'll look at Sean Connery, then we'll look at the one-off Bonds, George Lazenby, Barry Nelson in the TV series in the 50s. And we'll look at John Roger Moore and then Timothy Dalton and then Pierce Brosnan and to the current custodian of the role, Daniel Craig. So, yeah, so should we start with, should we start right way back at the beginning? Sean Connery, the the, the original Bond, the guy who, um, I guess, set the tone for what the Bond films could be and would be. Not the first Bond on screen, as we mentioned briefly, but uh, the first one that had international appeal, I believe. Yeah, so what are we thoughts on, on Sean Connery? It, it's usually people go, oh, the best Bond. Chandler yeah, yeah, and and um, I mean, he he came to the series really not not as an unknown entirely, but as and I think the Bond series has always done this with its casting. They when, whenever there's talk about a new Bond, the the newspapers and the media and now nowadays websites and and uh, you know social media and so on always start talking about the obvious names. I mean, the name that's been talked about all the time in recent years is Idris Elba, you know, and, and, um, and, and that, that it was even happening with, with P. 
people like Robbie Williams a few years ago, you know. But there's all this these one or two big names that the papers latch onto, and the broccoli's always managed to sort of open up a drawer and 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 pull out somebody who you're not expecting. It was like that with Daniel Craig. It was like that with Timothy Dalton. It was like that with Roger Moore, and certainly like that with George Lazenby. I think Piers Brosnan was perhaps the only one where he'd been sort of mentioned as a name, a, a, a possible in, in, in passing in the press. And, and, and this is a thing that goes right back to the start of the series, because Connery was not seen by everyone as a sort of ideal fit. I think in terms of his look and his style and everything, he was. But um, in terms of his acting experience... Maybe not. And people were talking about Patrick McGowan and other actors like that. So, yeah, the, the first thing to say about it is he was a little bit of a surprise, I think. I think it's interesting because um, I, I'm, I, I think there's an argument for everyone who's played Bond in the movies. I, I, I think there's an argument for them being the best Bond. And I'm a nightmare for whichever Bond I'm currently watching. I, I'll start to think I start to convince myself that this is my favourite Bond of them all. I grew up really with the Roger Moore bonds. So there's Roger Moore's always got a special place in my heart, but of course, Sean Connery just set the bar so high right from the start. I'm, I'm a huge, huge fan of those Connery bonds. And especially if you look back, I mean, like um, the, the last Connery movie I watched, uh, the last Connery bond I watched was um, uh, from Russia with love. And if you look at the fight in the train, that that fight scene is absolutely brutal. And, and the fight choreography would hold up to this day. Well, of course, they, they did a similar, I think they nodded to it, Inspector, the, the last Bond before, before No Time to Die. So Connery was definitely, you know, a genuinely tough guy. Um, you know, he didn't, mind, he didn't mind mixing it up. And I think that really, really shows on screen. And he also had that effortless charm. Whereas, say, with Roger Moore, he had the charm and the fun, but you wouldn't necessarily believe that, you know, he would win a bar fight in the same way that Connery would, you know? And then if you take Timothy Dalton, and I know, sorry, Adam, you're trying to concentrate on the first one first, but for Timothy Dalton, he could definitely win a bar fight, in my opinion, but perhaps didn't have the same sort of effortless charm that that Moore did. Although I think that Timothy Dalton is basically the blueprint for Bourne. And for me, he was an amazing Bond, very underrated. He was just ahead of his time, but we'll, we'll get to that. Sorry, I'm, I'm getting yeah. ahead of myself. And that's the podcast, guys. Cheers. Thanks. Um, <laughs> we wrapped it up. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, th- I think what what we, what you can say about the you know if we're if we're sort of covering these early films as a batch and the, you're t- you're talking about them as the Connery years, but of course you know the producers would have seen them as 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 the the the, the Cubby Broccoli years as well because nobody knew at the time that it was going to go on for 50, 60 years. You know, it was a risk. Also, um, I think. In terms of the, the directors that were appointed to the series, until recent years, they've always sort of gone the same way with directors, in that a lot of the, the people who are the big directors of Bond, and especially early on on the early Connery films, were not people with a directorial background. They often used people who'd proven themselves really, really efficient on second unit direction, on big action movies, or editors they often picked as well. Um, you know, it's people like um, Terence Young, uh, John Glenn, Guy Hamilton, Peter Hunt, who, who only made one Bond film, but probably the best one, which we'll talk about later, uh, was was completely inexperienced and, and made his directorial debut on that. You know, and so there were always these sort of chance taking elements. The one, the one thing that I would say about the early films as well is, I, I think what they do is. You could easily film these stories, and of course they're all based on Ian Fleming uh, novels, which the films then massively expand, and this this is the big thing with them, because you could film the Fleming novels, and they'd be great, poor little sort of film noir type things. You can imagine them in black and white, you know, 1950s movies or something, 40s, 50s movies, and that was the template really for the spy film and and there's an element of sort of film noir in there as well, I think, in 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 these tales. And and, and what 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 these early films did is they took that idea, they took that sort of core idea, and instead of making a sort of 75-minute black and white, uh, you know, very tight thriller, they set the same story on a massive, massive canvas and set this spy figure 
in the middle of this sort of exploding, expanding world. And I, th- I think that that was that was something new to cinema, really. And to pitch Connery fairly inexperienced in the middle of all that was was really throwing an actor in at the deep end, I think. Yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily entirely agree with that, Daryl. I think the books were definitely sold as globe-trotting adventures of a high-end spy having champagne with glamorous women, playing Baccarat in the biggest casinos around the world, places that you, you poor reader in Preston, will never, ever get to go. But you can relive, though, you can live that life by reading these books. That was definitely sold as a, as a kind of travelogue kind of thing, but with a spy story as part of the appeal of those Bond books. Yeah. Uh, it was definitely oh, selling of the glamour. Yeah. What I'm getting at there is that the the spy on film had always been, other other than occasional uh, um, movies by directors like Hitchcock, who could sort of expand that world in the way that Ian Fleming did, the spy traditionally had been a very sort of insular sort of figure on screen and had featured mainly in sort of programmer type movies, you know, often B movies or so on. I, I, I think I think the 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 Bond films were something new in that respect in that they were still and I don't know whether Ian Fleming does this necessarily but I always get the impression from the movies and especially from the casting of someone like Connery that um he's he's sort of finding his way into this world you know he's 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 at home in it but there is this element where he's sort of new to this and and finding his way in a little bit and that he's getting used to to this sort of globe-trotting lifestyle. Well, the whole thing is it is interesting from that point of view, isn't it? Because the, the films, you know, obviously they are, you know, perfect escapism, and they they you never worry they never worry too much about how they get from A to B and how this perfectly pressed tuxedo is suddenly in you know in God knows what location, <laughs> you know, with Bond wherever he is, you never see him worrying worrying about his travel. And but I think yeah that element of it is is important but I can't speak to it from the books because I don't know I've never read I've never read a Bond book which I'm sort of it's just suddenly occurring to me speaking really it's quite bad I should have at least read one but I haven't actually but uh, but just going back to a point that you made earlier Daryl which I thought was actually really interesting is that I wonder if it was because of the Broccoli's wanting to retain a certain degree of control over the franchise by bringing in these types of directors um, because it is. I mean, it's kind of more of a modern thing, really, for um, franchise. Well, the, in fact, if you think about it, the actual franchise itself um, is is relatively modern in that now every time a studio makes a movie, they're looking at it from a point of view of as, a, as a franchise. And so yeah, the yeah. Idea and, of- and, and film, films today are very much sort of, you know, films at this level are very much producers' films. Look at something like the Mission well, Impossible series or look at... In, even even the superhero stuff, the Marvel and DC superhero films, well, yes, they're sort no, of appointing no. directors in the same sort of way that 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 um, that, that uh, Broccoli's did. Yes and no, you see, because I think that's interesting. Because look at the Broccoli's uh, using someone like a Sam Mendes, particularly when they brought in Sam Mendes. I mean, he had he had a very powerful voice, you know. Uh, Marvel even using someone like Kenneth Branagh, you know, the thinking yeah. one yeah. assumes the thinking being that you know, okay, well, we know that, you know, the second unit are going to deal with the, the effects and the massive set pieces. So let's bring in a director that can really handle acting to handle the stuff that the first unit director is actually going to be hands-on doing. Hence, you know, someone like a Kenneth Branagh or a Taika Watiki, if, if I pronounce his name correctly. Or So uh, there is a, there does seem to be a trend more so these days than, than uh, back when the Sean Connery Bonds were out of bringing in an auteur, a director with a strong specific voice who can stand up to um, producers' opinions. But, and I know this is going off subject slightly, then you look at something like the Star Wars, recent Star Wars, if you concentrate on the main canon trilogy, where they did JJ, and then they brought in, um, remind me, Looper director, Ryan Johnson, Johnson. and JJ again. You see, that's a that's a good example of where some studio over, you know, you need you kind of need a studio to oversee that because I'm not talking about whether you liked or hated those movies. They were so wildly different and clearly not following, you know, a, a larger story arc. They were just kind of going off, and each di- and, and each director was bringing JJ and, and Ryan were both bringing their unique vision and unique voice to it. And, and unfortunately, I think that took away from the trilogy as a whole. 
Whereas those early Bond movies, if you you know, the one thing that you can say is relatively consistent is that the tone, you know, the type, you, you kind of, this almost sounds derogatory and I really don't mean it that way, but you kind of knew what you were getting into from, I guess, you know, once you've established the first two or three from, say, Goldfinger onwards, you kind of had a good idea of what you were going to get when you were going in. And that's exactly what the audience wanted, which proved time, yeah, and, yeah. which has been proven time does, and time again by the consistent box office performance. Does, does that make the films a little bit interchangeable? Are they, are they difficult to sort of distinguish from one another? You know, do people remember individual scenes, but then sort of wonder, you know, oh, I can't remember what movie that was in. You know, I remember that bit, but... That, that's yeah. That that depends on what level of fan you are, I guess. I mean, in terms of if you're a casual fan, if you like, who just goes and sees the Bond movie every two, three years, or however often it came out. I think it came out annually at one point, and you just go and enjoy it, and it doesn't really matter to you. You know, as you say, it kind of, you, you know, a couple of years time, you're not going to remember a scene from Goldfinger or a scene from Thunderball. But if you're like me and you watch them, you know, over and over again. <laughs> I can, I can, you know, I can, um, you know, they are, they are, the, yeah. each, each film does have a, a distinguishable voice to a point. Well, yeah, this, this is, this is a franchise that does have its sort of obsessive fans as well, who I'm sure can distinguish one film from another. Um, Adam, you, you, you sort of set this, this, this recording up as um, you're, you're trying to sort of get us to talk about the, the, the bonds in little groups like this, and of course. The immediate flaw there is with Sean Connery in that he made, what, the first five movies and missed one, then made another one and then came back and did an unofficial one in the 80s. So it's not as though you can sort of talk about the the actors in in a chronology like that because Connery's the guy who sort of messes all that up. Yeah, you can. Because diamonds are forever and never say never are rubbish. So you, you, you can finally, you can say that, can't you? He came back, did a rubbish one, went away and then did, did a non-official one. And that was rubbish as well. Did a sort of dodgy, a dodgy remake of Thunderball. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, it's, that's the, the uh, uh, by the way, diamonds, diamonds are forever is not rubbish. So you this can way. take that right back. <laughs> but... But no, it was all. Um, I was reading about this relatively recently, and it was all to do with that. It, the reason they were able to make Never Say Never Again is it's basically a Thunderball remake. Yeah. And what's interesting about Never Say Never Again is it doesn't have doesn't have certain characters in it. Doesn't have the opening, the classic opening of it down the gun barrel. Doesn't have obviously the bomb music. I don't think it has Q in it. I can't remember. And because obviously those they're not anything that they couldn't derive specifically from uh, Thunderball, they couldn't use. So it's a very, very strange because apparently that was uh, that that rose its head again uh, in the last few years as well. Somebody else was trying to do a rival Bond. I heard about at some point. I can't remember when it was. Now. Well, they were trying to establish. They were trying to do a third version of Thunderball at one point, yeah. but then I think I think Sony at the time, I think it was who owned the Bond rights, just came in and went. No, we'll buy it, and they just bought, and they, so it's finally they bought it out. Okay, so so Thunderball's finally. In the stable with all the rest, then because never say never was, was it, yeah. was, it uh, was it uh, Kevin McClory, I think it was, who had the rights to it and the broccoli. Yeah, yeah, he, and, cut, he uh, yeah, you know. yeah, they established a screenplay. Uh, Ian Fleming wrote the screenplay based on his book, but a lot of the elements in the screenplay were not in the book. So the other writer was like, Well, I established those, I established Spectre, I established all these things, and for the most recent movie, Spectre, they ironed that out and got it through so they could use Spectre and they could use Blofeld again. Because they didn't use Blofeld all through the 70s, apart from one scene where they never mentioned him as Blofeld, they just had the image of him in Fiorize <laughs> Only, maybe, or something like that, when they dropped him down a chimney at the start of the movie. Yeah, that's that's Fiorize Only, yeah. 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 Off the chopper, yeah. So they, they kind, of, kind of wrapped that up there. and But then obviously they brought Blofeld back and they brought Spectre back with the last uh, Daniel Craig movie. And uh, that was that was when they sorted the rights out with with Never Say Never Again. Oh, is that what uh, it was? I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah. But I mean, initially, I mean, obviously, the, the Sean Connery years. He did five movies, and you only live twice. Being the last one, that's the one in Japan where they make him up to look like a Japanese man. It's like what he, he, he does. He's really dodgy. You know? As Dom said, though, uh, you know, do remember that these other, other than you only, you only live twice, which came out a little later. The first four were annual, which is extraordinary. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I think he was fed up of doing them. And I think that kind of shows in that last one, it's got a great blow felt with Donald Pleasance, but it does feel like it's the, the end and they need something fresh. 
and obviously they went into to to you you only live twice uh Our Majesty's Secret Service with a new bond. And, this um, is a very underrated bond. I love Honor Majesty's Secret Service. And I think my my favourite. My favourite. I think it's one of those ones where it's like, it, it, it's massively underrated, but when you speak to a Bond fan, it's their favourite Bond. It's a great Bond. It is it's one of those things where it's just like, yeah, it's good. It's really good. I mean, he's not massively great. I don't think he's all right. He's not bad. He's no worse than, say, uh, Timothy Dalton in Living Daylights or Roger Moore in Live, uh, Live and Let Die. You know, well, I love, I love both. Bond. I love Dalton in both the Bonds. So don't, let's not go there. Yeah. No, no, no. It wasn't. It wasn't a criticism. It wasn't a criticism. We'll as there, a yeah. first movie, where you're finding your feet as oh, Bond sorry, and you're establishing you yourself, yeah. he's no worse than Roger Moore was than Pierce Brosnan was. I mean, if, if anything, Pierce Brosnan yeah. nailed it first time out, didn't it? With yeah, Golden he did. Eye. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, yeah. Goldeneye was by far his best Bond, in my opinion. But the, but the going back to, I mean, if you think about what Lazenby had to do, I mean, like Connery had, as we discussed before, Connery had set the bar so high and Connery was just so, I mean, you know, if you're going to have a conversation about the most charismatic actors to ever walk on screen, then you have to include Connery in that conversation. You just have to. And Lazenby came along and had to kind of, in a way, Lazenby bridged the gap between Connery and Moore because it was less jarring when we got to Moore. Because, I mean, I say like I was alive at the time, but, you know, looking back on it, this is how I presume it played out. Because because I, I would argue that if, if Moore had taken over straight away after Connery, people would have been a lot less accepting of him. Mm. But it was kind of Lazenby almost had to sort of bridge that gap of, of getting people used to a bond that wasn't Connery. And it's interesting because if I remember rightly, in that, um, in in fact, I'm sure in uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, it, it directly references he picks up props and stuff, doesn't he, from Doctor No and from yeah. previous movies. So it makes it very clear that they're trying to be a very direct sequel. Whereas Live and Let Die, um, Roger Moore's first film, that that to me doesn't. It's not trying to be. It's kind of its own entity in a sense. It's not trying in the same way to be. A, I mean, I know it is a sequel. But it's not like, you know, Honor Majesty's Secret Service was very, very purposefully trying to be a sequel, trying to continue on the same character in the same story. Whereas Live and Let Die felt like a bit of a new beginning, as I think they've done with all Bonds since on the on the, on the, the new Bonds first film. I think with, with Live and Let Die, it was like, here's another adventure starring James Bond. Yeah. Whereas with Honor Majesty's Secret Service, it was like, why does Bond look differently? Has he had plastic surgery? Because yeah, yeah. now we just accept the role as you know it's a new actor playing the role. Whereas in yeah, I guess in nineteen sixty seven, yeah, don't ask any um, sort of awkward questions, you know, about why why has this guy got a new face? You know, exactly. and, and I think audiences go with that. You know, we we have it with other characters too. I mean, Doctor Who is 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 sort of famous. Well, yeah, but, for... but Doctor Who, they and, and and other things like that, they create a mechanic. And it's, and it's written in, it's written it's written into, in to that the storyline. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Doctor Who regenerates and becomes a new person. Yeah. You know, sometimes they have other, I mean, one of my favourite of these kind of regeneration ones is the TV show Due South, where they introduce a new character and he's walking around for the first couple of episodes talking about how he's that character and everyone's saying he's that <laughs> character. And the Mountie character's like, but he's not that character. He doesn't look anything <laughs> like that character. And he goes on a few episodes. It turns out the other guy's undercover, and he's taking his place there. Yeah. So it makes it look he's like he's still oh, there. Yeah. And it was just like so they create a money, but they didn't do that in Bond. They just they just said, okay, it's the same guy. It's the same guy. On a side question, is there? Um, I, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head. Is there another major movie franchise where the lead main character? I know they've done it in a few comic book movies, but I suppose Batman will be will be there will be an obvious one. Just trying to think of major franchises that keep the same character but but um, but change the actor. I guess it's I guess whether it's whether they keep the same character in the same timeline. Yeah, I mean because Bond, yeah, yeah. the Roger Moore Bond and the Timothy Dalton Bond are supposed to be part of the same lineage as the other ones. You know, the, the Timothy Dalton's Bond character was the same character that went on the adventure in Goldenfinger. You know, and 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 did. Did the um, rocket packs and things like that, all those kind of things in in Moonraker? He was, you know, he was the same. It's the same character. Whereas the Batman's, I guess, they, they wipe yeah. the clean and it's a fresh start. Um, what happens nowadays is we get so many reboots, and they're so the, the reboots happen within a very short space of time as well. Look at what happened with Hulk, for instance. You know, um, and and so audiences, I think, have got used to that now. I think I, I think modern audiences are very very used to 
oh, that guy is now playing Spider-Man or that guy is playing Batman. And you just sort of accept it in the way that I think audiences over the past 60 years have accepted it with Bond. And it's it's remarkable that they did. You know, it really is. I mean, in 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 the Lazenby one, um, there, there is that gag, of course, uh, about this this wouldn't happen to the other guy. But uh, but <laughs> yeah. but then I, I think Roger Moore comes in and just makes the part his own. And I think ever since then, audiences and audiences like those films, and they were popular, and uh, it, it didn't do more any harm that they started with Live and Let Die, which I think was very very appealing to audiences at the time and a really great slick sort of winner of, of, of a movie you know and and the, I think audiences like watching that film and therefore they liked Roger Moore and um, and I think ever since then everyone's been accepting of it in Bond in a way that they might not have been if other series had tried it but now as I say with with, with reboots in in big budget movies, I think audiences are sort of conditioned to it nowadays. Because well, they, they do keep other they do keep other actors the same as well, don't they? You know, M Q. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dench in the in the in the Pierce So so you get your continuity in a way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there is, yeah, there is that element of it. It's no real. I'm just sorry. There's not a hard and fast rule to it, is there? Or is there? I don't know. Maybe I'm. No. This well, this this is what I would what I was going to say is that. Um, uh, this is where you, you you then enter the world of fan fiction, I think. I'm sure you can go on websites and so on where people are trying to sort of make sense of all of this and piece it all together. And you, it's so convoluted that you can't. But I bet there are people out there that are trying. Yeah, you, you can't because, like, yeah, some of the actors play different characters. I mean, the M from the early 80s Bonds was a different character in The Spy You Love Me. Yeah. It was a different yeah. ministry character, and he suddenly is M. And it's like, well, okay. I mean, even 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 the new film has got a double O eight, hasn't it? So, uh, yeah. Um, so so yeah, that that again is throwing a, a, a sort of Bond successor in into the mix. Well, and, Sean, uh, but wasn't Sean Bean double O eight in um, in um, Goldeneye, or was he double O six? He was double O something. Sean Bean. Was. Yeah. Yeah. He was A double O, yeah. And, and yeah. Uh, again, yeah, with the numbering of the agents, I, I don't I don't know how, how this is uh, sort of covered through through the, the, the books and the films, but uh, sometimes you get the impression that a, a new number's allocated when an agent dies, and sometimes you get the impression that there's a certain number of agents out there. And it's ne- to me, it's never really been made clear. I don't I don't know how right I am on. Well, did you guys? Um, did you guys? And I won't say the spoiler because I don't know whether we should or not. But did you guys read about the huge spoiler that came out um, for a time, No Time to Die, about what they're doing with that? Yeah, well, I won't. I won't say anything. But I, 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 I don't worry, people listening. I, I won't. I absolutely won't say this. And I was really, really gutted to read it. And if, by the way, you haven't heard about this spoiler, whatever you do, don't try and track it down because it's going to be a huge <laughs> moment and an awesome moment in the film. But I think um, the spoiler I'm referring to um, brings some clarity to, to what you were just saying, Daryl. I think it's uh, be quite interesting. Right, right. Well, uh, that will be interesting for me. It sounds like I'll enjoy that aspect of the film. I think, that, I think there's, there's a world where they create what their rules as they go along. And I think the, the idea of multiple double O agents didn't really start landing until the early 80s when you had, I think it was 006 was killed at the start of Octopussy. He's in the clown makeup and gets killed, and and yeah, and there's a revenge. And I think then, and then and I think in the in the Timothy Dalton movies as well. There's yeah, they did in the didn't they do it in Live and Let Die though? The opening of Live and Let Die wasn't that a bunch of uh, double O agents that were taken out at the start of um, I can't remember. start of Live and Let Die. I think they did. I can't remember. Yeah, I don't know. I can't remember. But I mean, all, 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 we're not going to go. Let's 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 stop down there next. We're going into the world of, of fan fiction and <laughs> and crazy <laughs> craziness. We don't, we don't want to go down there now. We've touched on kind of we we we've got the translation to to George Lazenby, arguably one of the better movies in in the series. Um, yeah, on my, a my favorite. Service. I, I I I just think it's the perfect Bond film. And it certainly it certainly has something that not many of the other Bond films have, and that's like a real personal connection for Bond in that movie, where you know a tragedy happens in his life. Most of the movies are like 
cookie cutter advent this is another james bond adventure and by the end of the adventure everything is back to normal whereas this one isn't and you yeah, do yeah. You, it, it doesn't happen very often but you do get references to uh what the events of that movie happening in in later movies we've talked about the opening of um for your eyes only he's there at the start visiting his wife's grave so you do get some of those hangovers and not very often but you do get them as it goes along um yeah the, the connery years have, have got a lot of criticism for bond being a sort of womanizing character now that that continues with george lazenby but of course part of his character are is that that changes and he does actually meet you know the the woman of his dreams and 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 is planning to settle down you know and and um, and that adds a different layer of drama to this one and uh, yeah. and uh, which really works i think it is interesting that that sort of looking back on these movies i think if we'd recorded this 3 or 4 years ago i think the Sean connery movies they don't i for me they feel way more dated now than they did five years ago. So, you know, just just because the world's changed so much and yeah. with regards to look we get those sensibilities of looking back at old movies. And and that at the you know, if you go back 20 years to the time when Austin Powers was ruling the box office, those those Connery films look current almost, you know. Yeah, yeah. But that's one of the that's one of the um more fascinating elements that I hope that they they don't shy away from in the new Bond. I hope they study the fact that he's a bit of a dinosaur, well, a lot of a dinosaur, and the methods he would typically use and the, the way he would typically live his life is just not the way that you can operate in in the modern world. Well, there's, yeah, there's a drama in doing that and layers to the character. I think if you do very that. much, so. and, and I, I I'd agree with you there, Don. Well, I think they've done that from Casino Royale, and I don't think there's... True. yeah, they've touched uh, on it. Sure. Yeah, I think there's definitely been, I mean, particularly the dynamic between Daniel Craig's Bond and Judi Dench's M. There's definitely tension there in that in those aspects. Um, well, I just, that, that's one of the many reasons that, I mean, again, skipping ahead, but that's one of the main, main reasons I adore Skyfall so much, because that was just, I mean, apart from it just being an absolute belting movie that I loved, and I know it does split opinion, but I loved it. Um, but I mean, when was the last time that you know? I think I think Judy Dench was in her late seventies when when that movie came out, and and a woman in her late seventies stealing the biggest action film of the year is not something I can remember previously. And she just stole that movie. She was so badass in that film. I love Judy Dench. But it but it is again again similar to. I mean, the reason why I think Skyfall is so successful is the same reason why I think On a Majesty's Secret Service is so successful. They built up genuine character development between the two Absolutely. characters Massive. and they made it so it was like you know this is this isn't just another person that i've got to rescue this is this is m this is judy dench's m i need and there's a connection there 100 percent. I, t- um, I couldn't agree with you more for me the key with something like a bond movie where no matter what you do subconsciously you're aware that the chances of bond dying just it's just not going to happen you know it's just there's something in the back of your mind that tells you that always so the best thing you can do with these types of films is you can put characters that you genuinely care about in jeopardy, and and Judy Dench had built up such a rapport with audiences, and you know everyone had grown so fond of her, in my opinion at least. That when you know you put her in genuine jeopardy in Skyfall, and you really do when when Bond's sprinting up that street in London to try and uh, you know, and he knows there's an assassination attempt about to take place. I genuinely believe that she was gonna. That was the point that you know she was gonna get taken out again. We're in spoilerish territory. And, you know, you felt like I, I, it was just, I mean, I, I, so, I was so emotionally invested in that scene. I really, really was. And I, I couldn't agree with you more, Adam. I totally agree that, you know, if you, if you, because they can do it, that Bond character, you know, it's got enough depth. There's enough meat on the bone there to really draw out an, an emotive reaction from an audience. And when they do that and combine it with the action, that's when you do get the films that really do stand out above and beyond just the pure raw escapism, which don't get me wrong, I adore and love. But um, but you know that, that's that's when you get the films that stand out above the rest, in my opinion, and get that balance right. How much of this could be put down to outside influence? Because as as we've said, the Bond films started out as annual and then were coming out regularly every two years. But then there've been occasional periods where they they've sort of gone off the map for four, five, six years, and in those periods, 
we've seen other people come in, like Mission Impossible and the Bournes and so on, have come in and tried to steal some of the Bond thunder. And you, I, I, I'd argue that when Bond does eventually come back after a period of a few years, they do sort of learn these dramatic techniques and these sort of emotional sort of ideas and, and character ideas from the competition. Well, I think I think that's a I think that's a fascinating point. Um, just in, 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 sort of, I don't know, from an overall point of view, because I think that Bond is very reflective of pop culture. And if you watch through, uh, you know, as we were saying about what's accepted and what's not accepted in film generally these days, and I think Bond is uh, tends to be very reactive of what's going on. Um, I agree. And I think that it's that it's no coincidence that the the sort of biggest drought of Bond movies we had was what, when the the Cold War, um, you know, ceased to be a thing. You know, and it was almost like the the you know the sort of the tension and the point of Bond kind of lost its relevance a little bit, and then of course we had gold. That was the end of the the uh, um, um, license to kill uh, the the last Timothy Dalton era. I think, if I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the longest time between Bonds since they first came out was License to Kill to Goldeneye. I think I think yeah, that was the yeah, longest that's gap. right. And, and of course, with, with this with this well, delay that we've we've now beaten that. So, but that's that's. You know, coronavirus is the ultimate Bond villain, I guess. But uh, but, but but yes, uh, and I would say, and I would, and, and just sorry, just to finish your your point, Darren, I would also agree that uh, I would say generally Bond has set the set the trend, uh, but I think ever so occasionally it's fallen behind, and I think certainly when the Bourne movies came out, it did feel like where Bond should have gone. You know, it, to me, it felt like what Bourne did, particularly the first couple of movies, what Bourne did really did feel like that Bond had fallen behind and Bourne was kind of sort of treading the territory that Bond normally would do. But then, but then I think Casino Royale kind of readdressed that balance actually and brought it back around and, you know, they delivered a cracking film, but you can't argue in my opinion, even, even right down to the way it was shot that Casino Royale isn't influenced by Bourne. Whereas typically you would, it would be the other way around, you know, other thrillers would be influenced by Bond as opposed to Bond being influenced by the, the current popular thrillers, you know? Yeah, I think it, I think it comes to the sort of like tail end of bonds. You, you can see where where the ideas are old, and it's usually the end of of a, of a, a particular actor's cycle. It's usually yeah. the end of the Roger Moore ones. It's the end of the um, Pierce Brosnan ones. I mean, two thousand and two, Born Identity comes out. Two thousand and two, Die Another Day comes out, and it's just like yeah, it's yeah, like night yeah. and day, isn't it? Watching those two movies, yeah, it really is. Um, the, the the great thing is that cinema always fills these these Bond gaps, though, because as we've said, you get the Bonds and things, and and then Bond, you know, funnily enough, Bond suddenly reemerges, and even in that big gap in the late from the late eighties through to the mid nineties, six year gap. Um, we had no Bond, but we had people like Chow Yun Fat um, as sort of suave tuxedo wearing uh, heroes with 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 uh, with guns you know and uh, there's there's always it seems even in times when we haven't got a bond we've always got something that that, that sort, sort of fills in even if it happens to be austin powers you know there's always something that comes in and and it's almost as though we we've got to have this this particular type of hero in cinema, uh, it's, it's great when it is Bond, but it's quite interesting when it isn't, and when we've got these gaps to see what what sort of comes in and and, and sort of fills in. Um, yeah, what you were saying about the, the Bond series being uh, very reactive, Dom. I, I've I've actually written that exact word down in my notes in preparation for today, because um, and I, I I think this this applies largely to the the Roger Moore years, which we we sort of talked about. Moon, bit, Moonraker yeah. and Star Wars, anyone? Yeah. Well, well, I'd, I'd go back even further. I'd, I'd say live, uh, live and let live die and black exploitation is basically it's black exploitation, <laughs> and of course, and of course, you've got the Exorcist, which hasn't come out yet, but everyone knows it's on the way, and so. They're they're sort of throwing in these sort of supernatural elements into it as well, but it's like the ultimate black exploitation movie, even to the point where the Baron Samady character was used in a black exploitation horror film, Sugar Hill, the following year, you know. And of course, you know, again, that's one of these rights things where because it's a figure from sort of folklore, the the Bond people couldn't sort of say that that they got the rights, so anyone could come in 
and and use that character and they did but yeah then you get onto you get onto the spy who loved me and then you get onto to star wars comes out and uh how does Bond react? You know, Moonraker. The, the Roger Moore era is so fat. That's the era that uh, you know that I grew up watching, really. That and and it was and it, I delved into the Connery uh, era from off the back of Roger Moore from asking my mom and my gran and my dad about you know to try to, to tell me about the history of Bond and learning all about this character. And it was the first film character I was obsessed with. But I think I think the more I mean, Live and Let Die. I, I love that movie. I think it's cracking. And and it was um, recently I watched because uh, I read somewhere that. Um, um, Chris Nolan said that Spy Who Loved Me was a big influence on Tenet. And um, so I went back and gave Spy Who Loved Me another watch, which is any excuse to rewatch a Bond. And um, and actually the Spy Who Loved Me stands out for me in that series. It's actually, I mean, it's a cracking thriller, the Spy Who Loved Me. It's absolutely brilliant. But it really does, for me, stand out um, as, as I, I, I've got to choose my words carefully, the sort of the most grounded of the more Bonds, I would argue, the, the Spy Who Loved Me. I mean, there's a couple of fun moments. Obviously, Jaws is in it, and you know, there's there's some fun. But if you look at things like Man with the Golden Gun, Moonraker, uh, even View to a Kill, if you compare those to The Spy Who Loved Me, I mean, they're very, very different films. I mean, perhaps slightly less so uh, for your eyes only. That's perhaps a little more serious. I think, I think, I think Spy Who Loved Me's got its own style of set. I mean, I mean, shootouts at the pyramids. <laughs> you know, it's quite quite globe trotty and expensive. Oh, no, no, that no, massive it, tanker set they set for the for the end sequences. Absolutely. It's, it's, huge. it's not it's not, I don't think it's a smaller film. I, I think it's a huge film. I think it's, I love it. I absolutely adore the spy love me. But I just think in terms of tone is what sorry if I wasn't are you are you saying it's sort of more more believable, more sort of real world gone? Yes, I guess not, I am not, really I guess it's a bit more serious. Yeah. And I'm not necessarily saying you know, there's anything wrong with not being serious. I mean, I love the man yeah. with the golden gun. I love, you know, it's great fun. I love Moonraker. I love it. But the, um, but you know, Spy and Love Me is a is a thriller that would hold up in any era as a cracking. You know, you you mentioned earlier about Hitchcock never making a Bond. He made North by Northwest. You know, I, to kind of get that Bond out of his system, in my opinion. You know, I would say the Spy and Love Me lives up there with Goldfinger. Lives up there with you know with just the more serious Bonds that stand out. I, I have a theory on, on this on the, on the Bond films. I think the more successful ones, are the ones that have got better music. <laughs> it just, I think it just, it just goes hand in hand with the the more memorable the song. Uh, uh, are we are we getting into best Bond theme here now, Adam? Not so much best on Bond themes, but it, 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 just because that's that's an endless argument, isn't it? But you do tend to have those ones where I can't remember the theme from that film. Yeah, yeah. That's why you love me. No, 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 no. Just, just, just generally. And, if you, if you oh, can't remember it, it's probably not a great movie either. Because <laughs> it's, it just, I just think it tends to go. They tend to go hand in hand. You know, like yeah. why I love me. Nobody yeah. does it better. What a great, you know, great Bond theme. You know, yeah. living like that. Die, die, an, die another day. Case in point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know what you mean now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's like it's just I mean octopus. It I can't even remember the theme tune from that. There you go. There you go. You know. Yeah. So you know, there's, a, there's a handful where you just think, yeah, just no, done nothing. Yeah, yeah. I want to pick up on a point uh, that that Dom raised earlier, where you you were talking about how the end of the Cold War brought about the end of the Bond series with the the the, the two Dalton ones. But to, to jump ahead from that, just, just on this particular point, um, in the Brosnan years, um, since suddenly, the, you know, we hadn't got Cold War villains, it's interesting to see how the series reacted to that. I mean, we even get a, a sort of uh, um, a, a, a sort of faux Rupert Murdoch as, as the villain in one of the films. So, yeah, it, it, must, it must have been very interesting for the producers and for the scriptwriters to think, well, Who's the bad guy in these? What 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 do we do now? We can't have the sort of big bad, uh, you know, Russian bear or whatever, or or the mad scientist with his laser experiments, or someone um, with his hollowed out volcano. What do we do? You know, and it's it's quite interesting. I think in those nineties films, how how they sort of respond to that. Yeah, not not well, really. I mean, uh, I think the the you know it's another weather. Well, I'm, I'm, it's not a surprise because because yeah. 
the, the Bond villain is so set in stone that, yeah, it must have been a struggle to suddenly have that whipped away from you. And what yeah. do we do? They, they, they try and create a, a, the North Korea as the, as the big bad, don't they? Think it? But yeah, yeah. It just smacks of xenophobia <laughs> in some ways when, <laughs> when they started doing it like that. Back when it was the Russian thing, it was like, it was us and them kind of mentality. It's, 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 it's not as much of that anymore. You can, yeah, you can you can be as offensive as you like about Russia, but you you can't about certain other countries. You know, it's it's weird, but yeah, it it, it was very much like that. But I think it's I think it's a really interesting point. You know, because it was tough because Brosnan's a great Bond, but you know, he's kind of you know he's a, he's a, he's got the sort of charm. He's got a, a tough edge to him, but he's still got the char charm of more, and he does definitely. Um, bring his own interpretation of the character. I didn't feel like he was trying to sort of copy anyone else. He was just doing his thing. And I think he's a great, really great Bond. But yeah, I, I mean, Robert Carlyle was a pretty decent villain, but I was, you know, I just didn't, um, didn't think that they delivered on the promise of the, of that character as, as, as well as they could have done. I agree. They definitely had a hard time sort of finding that um, Blofeld equivalent for one of a better way. Of yeah, I, I, I think, I mean, you mentioned Robert Carlyle there and we got people like Jonathan Price as well working in I the I thought Price was a pretty, I thought um, actually that was an interesting villain. I quite liked him. Yeah, they're, they're, they're okay. But I think what, what you're missing with actors like that is a sense of grandeur. A sense, I, I, I think a good Bond villain needs to be huge, needs to be Dr. Evil, you know. And I think the, the ones in the 90s, they, they were contemporary, which was good, but an, an, a, an interesting response to the fact that they we, 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 there was no Cold War anymore. But, and this is one thing the series seems to be starting to get right again now, is looking at casting big iconic names in in the villain roles and people that have been big box office or award-winning successes in recent years uh, i mean they're, they're going for the oscar winners now i think and uh, I, I wish they'd done a bit more of that in the 90s rather than casting the the, the, the sort of british that's a tricky one because like jonathan price robert carlyle they are the javier bardem's and uh, christoph waltz's of the 90s you know I think it's a lot less nowadays. It's a lot less. You got to remember, it's only really a, a relatively modern thing that it's. It was almost seen in a weird way as selling out. I think appearing in a franchise or doing something like that. Whereas now, yeah. it, I, don't, I really don't think that's the case. You know, you could get Al Pacino as a Bond villain. You could get, you know, you could get uh, De Niro in a Marvel movie. You could get actors like that love it as an acting choice, don't they? They, they, they think well. This part will stretch me. It's something but, different. But in the nineties, it wasn't so much the case, right? I mean, it wasn't so much the case that you could. I mean, if you look at the uh, going back to Dalton, who I think is the most underrated Bond of all the Bonds, and as I mentioned at the start, I think he's uh, he was ahead of his time. You know, he was very much a born Bond. And in a way, if you'd have yeah. got the uh, the Pierce Brosnan Bonds when you got the Dalton Bonds, and you got the Dalton Bonds when you got the Pierce Brosnan Bonds, you know, in terms of the tone. You perhaps, you know, you perhaps would have found that the Bond franchise would have been still leading the way in, in terms of the way that uh, the Bourne, because those those two Dalton Bonds are very comparable to Bourne, I think. And I think that, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and, that and I know actually, I, I heard, uh, I can't remember if I heard it or read it recently, but um, so apparently the Broccoli's loved Dalton and were desperate to uh, do another Bond with him and in fact had a third script written. And they actually felt quite bad because um, License to Kill was, relatively speaking, action light, certainly comparable to other Bonds. And so they'd written this third Bond uh, for Dalton, which was very, very action heavy. I can't I, I can remember bits of the script, but not enough to fairly you know, to say here because I might get parts wrong. But the, the script sounded incredible and, uh, and they really, really, really pushed to get it going. But the, um, the studio at the time, as I understand it, just wouldn't have it. And so they were eventually forced to let Dalton go. And because of their relationship with Dalton, they were so close with him. Apparently they said, look, we want you to say, you know, we want you to quit. We want you to say you haven't got the time or you don't want to carry on. Because, we, you know, we, you know, just to give him that courtesy so it looked like he was walking away as opposed to they were letting him go, which is obviously very different to how the Brosnan thing played out. And that's why we didn't get that third um, Dalton bond. And I just wonder whether the reason those Pierce Brosnan bonds kind of went more into your sort of 80s Roger Moore territory um, was as a kind of a reaction to the more serious Dalton bonds. 
And by doing that and by kind of um, going in a little bit more of a, I don't want to use the word daft, that's not fair, but in a little bit more of a playful direction with the, um, with the Brosnan bombs, what they actually did was put themselves out of step with the way that, you know, with the direction the franchise perhaps should have gone. And then they kind of, um, they sorted that out with the, um, when Daniel Craig came along with Casino Royale. But that, ne- that doesn't necessarily mean Brosnan wasn't a brilliant Bond. He was a brilliant Bond. I just think that, as you pointed out before, Darren, I totally agree. Those bombs were kind of in a weird hiatus. They didn't really know whether to go daft in the 80s, serious, you know, try and go more serious. You know, what, they didn't really know where they lived. But that's yeah, what it seems from the outside in anyway. I, th- I think trying to compare the Bond film, I think the Bond franchise is reactive, but it's reacted to other films rather than the previous Bond films. I don't necessarily think they looked at Pierce Brosnan and said, okay, we need a lighter Bond after the dark dark Bond of, uh, of Dalton. I think it was more a case of, well, what's popular at the moment in 1996? And you've got Will Smith cutting a, cutting like a, a wisecracking figures. You've got um, a Mission Impossible. The first Mission Impossible movie was, what, 96, 97, 95? But that was quite a serious movie, that first movie. It was a serious movie, totally. as was Goldeneye. Yes, I, I would. I would argue the first Mission Impossible is perhaps slightly more serious in tone than the first. Oh no, no, it is. No, it absolutely is. But then it's not Bond, is it? It doesn't have the history of wisecracking Bond. You've got to have some wisecracking in a Bond movie. You've got to have some uh, flirtatiousness and and cheekiness about a Bond. Otherwise, it's not a Bond movie. You're making a Mission Impossible yeah. movie. It is interesting, though, isn't it, in terms of um, because a lot of people felt that Skyfall um, wasn't playful enough and had sort of too much of a serious tone. And then they made Spectre, which I felt didn't quite get that balance. It kind of tried to add playfulness to a serious tone bond, if you like. And it, I didn't mind Spectre, but I didn't I felt it felt, it felt a bit um, incongruous within itself or uh, like a bit juxtaposed. You know what I mean? It just yeah. didn't quite meshed together correctly. Well, I think it's one of those things where we've been talking about the Bond films, like they're all one timeline. But with Casino Royale, it was marketed as a reboot yeah. in many ways. Yeah. Where and, and, and then they, they even did a direct sequel to it. Exactly, well, yeah. Which, which was a first. So we, we sort of fostered that idea that, yeah, we're, we're telling one character's story here across these four or five films, yeah. I, I like the way the Quantum of Solace started. That was great. So they got to that stage where they've, 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 they've rebooted the character and they've done the serious coming of uh, him becoming Bond, becoming uh, the 007 character, getting his first licence to kill and all that kind of stuff. And then the idea being that Spectre's where he becomes the James Bond character that Roger yeah. Moore is and Roger uh, and Sean Connery was in the later ones. So I, I guess that's where they're going. But I think some of that's kind of gone out of the window a little bit with it. It's kind of like, well, yeah, they're all part of the same universe now, <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah, that's it. They've, 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 I, th- I, think, I think for audience familiarity and, and to try and, you know, make sure that they're, they're staying at a level of popularity, they've introduced these familiar elements. Like we've, we've, we've got Blofeld back and things like that. And, uh, um, and they're going a little bit more along the lines of, of of trying to sort of re-establish the classic type of supervillain that you had in the Connery films. As you say, Dom, it doesn't quite mesh with the 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 the, the gritty, serious approach and the sort of character, the, the overriding character arc that Adam's talking about. Um, the two things don't quite fit together there. I don't think you can sort of introduce all of these elements, lump them all together and expect to have anything coherent. And I think that the the last um the, the last um, Daniel Craig Bond did suffer from that. I'm hoping that they 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 sort of iron that out in this new one. For God's sake, they've they've had plenty of time I to iron out. I think they will. I think they will. I I've I've got high hopes, I must admit. I think Casino Royale and um and Skyfall really stand out for me as as two corking yeah, bombs, yeah. you know, in the whole franchise they stand out and Hold up, and I've got high hopes. I really do. Let's just remind remind everyone at this point about the time that Daniel Craig, again, a, a surprise a surprise appointment to to the role, as as are they as they often are, you know. But this this one in particular, got the the online petitions, the the outcry in the media, you know, how nonsensical does that seem? Now? It's so interesting because, like, with 
with the other surprise, uh, like, oh, my God, uh, Roger Moore. It's like, yeah, Roger Moore had years doing Simon Templar, which was uh, not quite the same, but not far off from his depiction. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Pierce Brosnan, who'd done the Remington Steel stuff. So they all had... Yeah. So they, they, they were fits. They were fits, whereas Daniel Craig, our friends in the North, you know, he'd done, like, b- b- British he dramas. Cake, didn't he? he did Lay Cake, yeah, very, very... That seemed to be the one yeah. film that, that sort of got the producers interested. Yeah. So just let me ask you this. In the book, is Bond English? Yeah. I mean, so straight away, I mean, so there is no... Because, I mean, Connery was Scottish for a start. So, yeah. I mean, like... He's a British super agent. He's a British super agent. But my point is, is that, you know, I just think people go mad because Daniel Craig's Bond or because... It's like what you know? Are you going mad because he's different to the book? Are you going mad because he's different to Connery? Does, does all... No, they, they were going mad because he's got a face like a bag of spanners. That's why they were going mad. He wasn't sexy <laughs> I heard it was enough. He, I think a lot of people were going mad because he had the, because of the blonde hair. And I think most women would argue when he was walking out the sea in his in his trunks in in Casino Royale that the sexiness was ticked. That box was ticked thoroughly. Because I tell you. I, you know, as shocking as this sound, boys, I don't I don't look like that when I walk out the sea in my trunks. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and they're not asking me to be Bond. I'll tell you that before. Um, wasn't wasn't that a lovely? I mean, we talked about earlier about sexism in 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 the Bond films. Wasn't that a lovely rejoinder across the decades to Doctor No? You know what a fantastic uh, sort of idea. I think it was a great idea, a really really good idea. And I just I think that the the vitriol that the new Bond um, always attracts, I think is I think it's just generally ridiculous. To be honest with you, and I mean. I would love, love, love to see Idris Elba do the next, be the next Bond. I mean, perhaps the argument being that perhaps he's getting a, a little bit older to take on a, you know, a decade. Of, I do like it when a Bond sticks for a few movies and we can have a nice journey. So maybe, maybe he's, I, don't, I mean, I don't mean to be ageist. Maybe I, I'm not sure, even sure how old Idris Elba is, but but I, I would love him to see to see a real curveball. I, I, you know, somebody completely different and fresh and. I yep. certainly would love to see a person of colour take on Bond next. Definitely, I think that's the the way the yep. franchise should go, in my opinion. I think it's just a great reflection of England, and and I just think it's the character the direction the character should go in now. I think it's uh, you yeah. Know, so a good Bond needs to be a Bond for our times. So. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely, I think yeah. so. And uh, I mean, and also to be honest with you, I mean, I don't really care what Bond looks like. I think it's just a case of getting the right actor. In, in that role that you know yeah. i mean they're talking i never saw it but they're talking about um the the the, the fella from uh bridgerton a lot of people are talking about him for that as the next bond uh, well it's just oh, open open a newspaper and whatever's popular at the moment they're yeah, talking about the guys yeah, the next no, bond. Right. oh doctor who oh yeah <laughs> so it's, it's, it's you know pinch of salt i think when bond first launched in the 50s in the books it was very much about a british secret agent traveling the globe that was carried over into the movies. Roger Moore was very, it was a very British Bond. Have we lost some of that Britishness over the character over the last 10 years or so with the Daniel Craig Bonds? Does he feel uniquely British? Does he feel like a British character in, on cinema now in the same way as Roger Moore did, in the same way as Timothy Dalton did and, and, and Sean Connery yeah. did? I, I'd, I'd say Daniel Craig is a very international character, I think. But I think the series is still trying to emphasise its Britishness by way of the supporting characters and the way that they react to, to the main guy. You know, the, the characters in the background, the MQ, anyone else who's sort of around in the organisation, it's still very sort of old school tie, very sort of English very traditional with with Bond in the middle of it, almost as a bit of a loose cannon, you know, that that they sort of respond to. And I think he's an international character, but the 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 organization around him and the whole setup, I think they are there is still this emphasis on on Britain. And and you've you've seen that in something like the Kingsman series, which has come along as the latest Bond ripoff, if you like, or or series franchise that's been influenced by Bond. And that I think really plays on its Englishness, and it and it does so because Bond does. Yeah, I, I would agree with that largely. I think I mean if you only need to look at something like Skyfall, I felt that that felt really English. And having now, I was actually in uh, LA when Skyfall came out, and it's so weird because you do always or I always think of Bond as something so English, and you know being in America and it just being 
absolutely everywhere, you know, and every billboard, every poster, it was all yeah. over. And you think, God, you, it really does make you realise. I mean, I know it's stupid because, of course, I know that Bond is a massively international franchise, but, but you know, it, it was quite almost surprising to see just how big a deal it was in America as well as it is yeah. in England. But I... I think that Britishness, that old-fashioned Britishness, is still a selling point. I think that I still agree. sells very much. So. I'm, I mean, I'm interested to know why why you're asking this question, Adam, because uh, it seems so obvious to me. But I'm well, I'm sensing you might have a you might have a differing. No, 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 not at all. Not, not massively. I mean, I, it just it just occurs to me that there's there's I don't know less flavour. I mean, maybe it's because of the influence of Bourne and the influence of those movies that these movies. They don't look British to me. I don't know whether that's, I don't know whether I need a Union Jack slaps over everything to, to reinforce it, <laughs> but it, I don't know. There's just, there's just something that's international about it. I think they're taking a very positive view of movie Britain, though. I think, I think, I think they're pitching Britain into that world and saying, yeah, in the way the Kingsman films do, I think, I think, I think both, both series at the moment are sort of saying, yeah, Britain's got a place in the world, and it'll be interesting to see how any future films in both series sort of react to to what's happening I mean, in Britain today. Yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I think that sense, that sense of pride might be sort of you know disappearing. Well, it's an interesting thing you say that about, about the sense of the sense of British and Britain's place in the world, because that's kind of a really reason these whole this whole franchise, this whole book series first started. You know, you've got Britain yeah. out coming out of the war, a defeated nation in some ways. We won the war, but we, you know, we were massively in debt to America. The end, the empire was yeah. gone. We, you know, we weren't the power that we were just 20 years ago prior to that. And then yeah. suddenly we, we could still be the huge nation that we thought we were via our yeah, characters yeah. like Bond. Right. Going back to the point you just made about Bond not looking English, can, and I, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but just to help me understand what you mean by that, what, what, can you give me, a, um, just give me an example of a film that you think does look? Well, I, I, I think, I think maybe, maybe, I don't know. I mean, the Kingsman, the Kingsman films feel English to me. And I don't know whether it's in the tone of the writing or it's in the tone of the, 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 the setting and the juxtaposition of the, the, the working class and and the, and the and the high class sort of like together. Sometimes when Bond's not done tippy top well, it feels like it's a depiction of a stereotype of what England is or Britain is, rather than a depiction of what Britain is. Yeah, well, I think that's fair, and I think it does lean into English stereotype. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I did. I've really felt Skyfall particularly felt very English. Yeah. With the London setting, and arguably, but, uh, it's, most it's, it's interesting to hear what you mean. Yeah, it's interesting to hear. I, 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 but I do think it does lean somewhat into ste- the stereotype of Englishness to a point. But I think but it's, Kingsman it's, takes that stereotype and grabs it by the throat, doesn't it? Kingsman loves that stereotype. It, it, but the step, but it's the stereotype of upper class Englishness in the Bond films. Yes, yes. You know, so it very you know, is, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it, it evens the point of like, why well, can't we have a working class with you? As you've said in in Kingsman, we we have that representative of the working class who's entering this world yeah. and is sort of coerced into this world, but is also almost sort of winking at the audience and saying, "I'm here as your you you in row three who work in a factory. You know, I'm your representative here, and let's let's all take the piss out of these tops and these sophisticates." Well, it definitely needs to be ahead of the time as opposed to be behind the time. It needs to, you know, that's, that's what Bond needs to make sure it does in order to stay relevant, you know? And it's been, it's been at its most successful when it is. I, I, think, I think you can look through the whole series and, and the good films are the ones that have been sort of forward-looking and forward-thinking and the bad ones have been the reactive ones, to use your words. I still love Moonraker, but I know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> awful, awful, awful movie. I, 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 in preparation for this, I rewatched a lot of the Bond movies, and mainly, and I thought, well, I don't really need to see the Sean Connery ones again. I've seen them so many times, so I started with the Roger Moore ones. We haven't really talked about the Roger Moore ones that much on this podcast, but the Roger Moore ones uh, I find really fascinating in their sort of like continuity. There's not the sort of like hard, hard continuity of things, but you get little 
little things that carry over and link the movies. So you have like, you know, Live and Let Die, and then you have the Man in Golden Gun, you have that, the, the, the Southern Sheriff, J.W. Pepper. He crosses over into yeah. those two movies. And then you yeah, get Jaws coming over in the two movies, you know. You get these little things that just like link them softly. That gives yeah. it a sense of yeah. a whole world of, of uh, again, in, in, a, in a more jokey way than what is happening with Daniel Craig. This is the Roger Moore Bond's continuing yeah. story sort of thing. It's all, it's all one yeah, big I mean, movie. I mean, I mean yeah. he, 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 he did seven movies back to back, whereas like Sean Connery, who also did seven, if you include the, uh, the, the, the non-canon one, but he only did five in the run. And I think the last yeah. two, Octopussy and A View to a Kill, you're starting to see the sort of like the legs are going, you know, it's not quite, you know, particularly with a casting on A View to a Kill, where you cast Roger Moore in his late 50s, Patrick McNee in his early 60s, yeah, yeah. and then you've got, Christopher Walken and Grace Jones up against him. It's just like, you're just emphasising the fact that these are old guys now, you know. They're two awesome villains, though. I love those I think they're, they're, the, only, they're the only two films out of, out of the, the 25, 26 that they've done that, that have a sort of geriatric, a noticeably yeah. geriatric bond in them, you know. I mean, if you, if you look at the ages of the actors, I'm, I'm sure they're, they're, others have played Bond there's only a few years yeah. between them. There's there's never been a very young one or a very old one. So, so Moore's not, in real terms, he was not noticeably older than anyone else, but he looked older and yeah, you could I feel see. it in the film. And they were they were on their last legs. I mean, in, in a way, it'd be great. In, in the same way that Casino Royale explored, I mean, you know, just when you thought you didn't need another origin story of any, you know, the, the Bond origin story actually turned out to be really quite, very interesting, I thought. Um, it'd be equally yeah, interesting yeah. to explore a, a retiring Bond, you know, a Bond's having to live with this guy who's been yeah, almost superhuman yeah, yeah. and, you know, never losing a fight, being able to pull off these incredible feats. But, you know, maybe see him where he doesn't pull off something or he loses a fight. One idea people have talked about quite a lot in recent years has been to do a um, do a 60s set Bond now, you know, make that now. I don't, so, I don't, I don't like the idea of that. Oh, I do. I do. Why don't you like the idea of that? I, I just think it would be a killer for the franchise. I think Bond is always, for good or ill, it's always modern day. You know, it's always but it's always current. Could you not do it as a standalone? Yeah, you could. A completely different actor. You like, could do it as a. We what would be really interesting is similar to what uh, Tarantino was talking about doing with Star Trek. Do it as a sort of like non, almost like a non-canon yeah. film. And it's like it's a lot alongside yeah. it. I mean, there's, there's more opportunities. He was talking about doing that with Bond as well, wasn't he? Tarantino. He was talking about doing Casino Royale with Brosnan. Yeah, they'll never, they'll never let him touch Bond. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Go track down as many Bond films as you can squeeze in before the end of September, and we'll be un- hopefully unleashing No Time to Die finally on big screens. Uh, uh, then we will. See you again in a couple of weeks' time. Do check out our Facebook page. Do join our Patreon for additional episodes uh, that we and Daryl and other people have recorded. They're exclusive to that platform for at least six months, so you get extra podcasts from us on our Patreon. And we will see you soon. Take care.